Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. Thanks for joining Jeff and I. Today, we're going to be talking about questions asked by Jesus. Now, Jeff, you might remember for our 200th episode, we kind of did a special episode where we looked at questions that others asked Jesus. So it was kind of different, like we normally answer questions from people. And so in this one, we're doing something similar, right? Where we're looking at questions that Jesus asked and trying to glean from the answers, you know, what kinds of lessons that we can learn from this as well. So once again, another twist, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it is. And it's kind of an interesting twist. I mean, just on the very surface, you know, Jesus being deity, you know, son of God, in addition to humanity, son of man. Why would he even ask a question? I mean, he knows everything, right? So why ask a question? Well, there must be a little bit more to the story. And as we'll see, really, it basically is trying to get his audience to think about things, you know, by asking questions. And encouraging them to, you know, pause and stop and ponder the question and what the answer to the question would be. So, yeah, looking forward to today's podcast. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how a few of the questions we'll see that he asked were rhetorical questions, right? And so, True. to your point, sometimes he did it just to teach a lesson, right? Like, uh, here's this should be obvious to you, you know, kind of things. So what we'll do, as we've talked about, you know, we'll consider some questions that Jesus asked. We're going to look at the answer. In some cases, the answer is more for context. And like we said, it's a rhetorical question or the answer is teaching us lessons. So ultimately, that's our goal, right? What does the Bible teach? What lessons can we learn? So Jeff, let me go ahead and give you the first question. This one comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. So for our listeners, if you want to just make a note of Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17 is really a context for this question. The question itself is, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then it's immediately followed by a second question from Jesus, but who do you say that I am? Yeah, so let's pick up on the context, uh, beginning with Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to them, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So lesson or lessons can we uh, glean from this? Well, first of all, in Jesus' time, just like today, a lot of divergent views or divergent opinions on who Jesus is. In today's world, some people say, well, Jesus didn't exist. You know, he was like a concept, not really a person. Some people might say, well, yes, he was a very wise man, just like, you know, Gandhi or Buddha or some other, you know, wise person, you know, back in history. Uh, some people will say he is a false prophet, uh, particularly, you know, Judaism would claim that. Others would claim he was indeed a prophet of God, like Abraham or Moses or Muhammad. You know, Islam would, would teach that. Some would say that he is God, 
in the sense that God is a singular entity, no trinity, and that God who was in heaven came to this world, singular. Uh, oneness Pentecostals uh, typically will teach that. So a lot of divergent views, both then and now. So that, that's one perhaps, you know, small lesson. The other thing, uh, another thing I found a little bit odd, you know, most of the things that people thought Jesus was or who they thought he was, dominated by the dead, being resurrected or being reincarnated. Like, well, this is Elijah come back from the dead or Jeremiah come back from the dead or John the Baptist who Herod had beheaded come back from the dead, etc. Even though there's no Old Testament, you know, scriptural evidence that, you know, reincarnation occurred, etc. Key point being the need to stick to the scriptures and what the Bible has to say about something for everything that we you know, believe or practice, you know, from a religious perspective and not just speculate, right? And then, of course, within the passage, uh, probably the biggest lesson for us, you know, Jesus' assertion for being the Christ, also uh, different translations would say the Messiah, literally means the anointed one, as well as deity, you know, son of God. So there, there you go, Brian, you know, several things we can learn from our first pair of questions. Yeah, I like your answers, especially because you almost really have to say that you don't believe what the Bible says to believe some of these false doctrines that you mentioned about Jesus, because it's pretty clear. So anyhow. Exactly. All right. So you get the next one. Actually, in, in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 16, verses 26, he asks, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Yeah, this is a question I think is one of the most important questions that Jesus ever asked. And you could say it's kind of rhetorical in a sense, but let, let's go ahead and look at the context for this one as well. So Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27, then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So the rhetorical part of that, of course, is you should hopefully already answer nothing, right? It should be obvious sort of thing. Uh, verse 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. And so what are some lessons we can learn? One is our soul is the most important part of our existence. And there is nothing more valuable. And that's why I like how Jesus framed the question. You know, what profit is it? I mean, you could, if you think about it, we could be successful from a business perspective or a life perspective or popular or rich, but yet we could lose our soul because we refuse to deny ourselves. We become so wrapped up in our lives that we don't have time for the Lord. So what's your reward if you lose your soul? Nothing. And so... Over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, here Paul says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through 
with many sorrows. Yeah, one thing I like about this verse is that it talks about the fact that it's talking about money, of course, but that's one of the most common ways in which people refuse to deny themselves. They're so hung up on whether it's money or possessions or fame or whatever that they would never do something like deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. Well, what does Paul tell them to do in verse 11? He says, but you, old man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So if you are a follower of Christ, you have to acknowledge that your soul is much more important than anything that you'll accomplish in this life. And so therefore you should flee all these worldly things and these ungodly qualities and instead be right there with the Lord, fighting the fight of faith, committing yourselves to him. One final passage here is is in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you have that perspective that Paul had, you say, Lord, you're driving my life, so to speak, and I will do your will. So that's the, the really the most important lesson I see. A second one is that Jesus expects us to be fully committed. So when we looked at the very first part of that reading in Matthew 16, 24, and 25, where Jesus talks about, you know, if you desire to come after me, you need to deny yourself. Well, we see a similar thought. Jeff, if I could get you to read Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, where Jesus also makes the point about being fully committed. Okay. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Very interesting, like three different scenarios there. Yeah, it really is. And... It just really speaks to the fact that Jesus expects us to be fully committed. You know, we don't talk about this a lot, but I guess some of it can be assumed, and that is when we put on Christ in baptism, we confess our belief in the Lord. We are also, when we enter into that covenant through baptism, saying, Lord, I will now follow what you want me to do. And once again, that should be obvious to us, but yet oftentimes we live our lives the complete opposite where we get wrapped up in this world and we love the things of the world, but we don't commit ourselves as we originally did when we're baptized, or maybe we become weak or or whatever. But the the reality is that Jesus wants us to be committed. And so you kind of have these exaggerated examples, if you will, like not going back and burying the dead, not going back and even bidding your family farewell. That sounds so cruel, but really Jesus is trying to get them to understand the larger point. And that is, when you say you're going to follow me, do it forsake everything else and follow me. That needs to be your focus. So anyhow, a a final lesson, and and I guess we could say it's really a reality, is what he said in verse 27 of Matthew 16 there that we were reading. And that is that there will be, for the Son of Man will come into the, the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one 
according to his work. So I like how Jesus finishes this section by saying that because, oh, by the way, you'll want to commit to doing my will because you're going to be judged based on that expectation. So, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, I like that, you know, at least in the sense of, uh, you know, the direct contrast between materialism, material wealth, you know, fame, fortune, et cetera, in this life versus the price or value of our, you know, soul, our uh, eternal destiny, our eternal salvation. Some people talk about, you know, they, they, they search or they're, they're all about uh, achieving greater, you know, wealth and fortune and, and fame. And yet in striving for these kinds of things that they lose sight of perhaps the most precious thing that they have, and that is their soul or their spirit or their uh, you know, eternal uh, destiny. And, and yeah, you could, you could, you know, there's no way you could, but if you could, you know, somehow be, you know, own everything on the planet, you know, worldwide ruler, all the fame, all the fortune. And at the end, it'll result in nothing uh, if you lose your soul. Or, 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 you know, judged and, and wind up in hell. So, yep, a very thought-provoking question, so to speak. Yeah, Jesus knew how to kind of elicit thought, didn't he? <laughs> and so... Um... Well, indeed. You know, and I like when you said up front, you know, it's like at least a couple different reasons why he's doing this. One is, you know, to get the person to think and come back with an answer. And you said other times it's rhetorical. In this case, it's rhetorical. You know, the, you know, back to the original question, you know, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The answer, none. <laughs> uh, came into this world naked, we're leaving naked. Came into this world with nothing, we're leaving with nothing other than our soul or our destiny, if you will. Yes, that's it. That's it. All right, the next question comes from the section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And the question Jesus asked is found in verse 3 where he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Yeah, I could see, Jeff, when people first read that, they're like, what? <laughs> like, what is he talking about? You definitely need to read some other verses to understand. True. Well, and, you know, just as a quick side comment, that, that's a very, very important Bible study principle. You know, look at the context around a particular verse. You're confused about what a verse says? Look at the verses around it. Uh, and there's some other aids that also enable you to look at other passages that you know talk on the same subject. But oftentimes the answer to some of the questions we get is within the same context. If they just look, read a few verses before or a few verses after. So in this particular example, you know, Matthew chapter seven, we go back to verse one with with a very commonly quoted verse: "Judge not, that you be not judged." For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And then, of course, here's the question. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank or beam or whatever, very large object in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, several different lessons here that we could uh, offer to our, our listeners. Uh, one, as I hinted at, this particular passage is often abused or misquoted to teach that we are not to judge at all. Verse 1, judge not that ye be not judged. But what they fail to do is read down to verse 5. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
John chapter 7, verse 24 continues that thought. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 15, uh, within this same chapter, beware false prophets. Well, that implies we need to judge or discern who's a false prophet and who's not. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Well, that implies the ability to judge or discern, you know, evil company, evil companions, evil friends, etc. Next chapter over, or a couple chapters over in Matthew, Matthew 18, verse 15. Therefore, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Judging, yes, you have sinned against me. Okay, that does require a sense of discernment, a sense of judgment, and a sense of uh, saying something about it. Even more so, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. For I have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Certainly a sense of judgment going on there. And finally, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, dealing with the uh, fornicator within the congregation and congregational discipline. You know, making a discerning judgment about what's going on and taking action appropriately. So, you do not abuse this passage to teach, oh, we are never to judge. You know, we're never to say anything to anyone else about how they're living. No, that's not what this passage and other passages are saying, passages are saying as well. Now, what is condemned is a degree of hypocrisy. You know, Brian, it's, it is so easy, and we're often very quick, to point out what other people are doing wrong. And it's often harder for us to detect those kinds of acts in ourselves. You know, as I said, it's, it's, it's easier to you know, stick your finger out and point at somebody else when, you know, you might be doing, in some ways, you might be doing the same thing. You might not be doing it, but you're doing something different. Uh, or what you're doing, in some sense, is a lot worse. <laughs> than the people you're out there trying to uh, correct, if you will. So th there's that hypocrisy you know, within the passage. Uh, but there's also a sense of showing, if you will, which is wrong, showing you know, contempt or harshness or being critical or, or somehow thinking that you, know, you are uh, Christ and you know, you're usurping his role as the ultimate judge. Uh, Romans chapter 14, 10 speaks to that. Uh, but why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So yeah, when we start thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought and we put ourselves in the seat of the judge, so to speak, showing contempt, harshness, or, or thinking we're the final say-so, you know, that's condemned as well. But in terms of making discernment, and in some cases, actually talking to people about their sinful behavior, you know, that is permitted. Brian, any uh, further thoughts? Yeah, this is one of my favorite lessons that Jesus ever taught. And, you know, if, if somebody wants like a, what we might say a master class on how to teach, Jesus is a great example, isn't he? I mean, you use parables because, you know, these were stories that people could relate to that would teach a lesson. In this case, he's using hyperbole, you know, exaggerated statements that help to prove a point. You know, you think about a massive plank or beam <laughs> hanging out of somebody's eye compared to that little tiny speck that you want to go and scrutinize. And so now I appreciate the points you made because you're right, it's so easy. And I would say all of us suffer from this as human beings until we become more spiritually mature. And that is easily seeing the faults in others and being totally 
either ignorant, blind to our own, or just denying that it's even there. And so just wonderful lesson from Jesus. And so, yeah, appreciate those points and passages specifically that you shared. Yeah, well, and in some ways, as we're kind of pointing out, it's almost comical. You know, you got this big two by four <laughs> in your face, and and you're going to you know look past that or through it or, or or somehow to make some very careful, very discerning, very you know very precise, meticulous correction, if you will, uh, of this little you know tiny speck of something in, that someone else has in their eye. It's just like it, it, it's it's humorous. Well. I would say it's humorous if it wasn't so serious, because a lot of us have to be careful that we act that way. You know, we, you know, as I said, you know, we go around and say, oh, they're doing that wrong. Oh, they're doing that wrong. Oh, they need to do that better. Oh, well, they should know better. Blah, blah. When, in fact, it's like, yeah, and have you looked in the mirror lately? <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Whatever. All right. So, Brian, here's here's another one. And, you know, it'll be one of those rhetorical ones. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? There you go, Brian. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it's one of those where you can claim to be a follower of Christ, but if you're not doing what he's saying, you're not a follower of Christ. It's just that simple. And in fact, in Luke chapter, as we continue on in Luke chapter 6 and verses 47 through 49, he uses this really nice analogy about those who would listen and obey what he teaches versus those who do not. So he says in verse 47, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. And so once again, we could call him Lord, Lord, but if we don't do the things that he says, then in essence, our spiritual foundation will be weak and we'll either be tempted and fall away or we'll fall into sin through enticement or the riches of the world or whatever it might be. And so there are many who claim to love the Lord, but once again, they fail to learn this fundamental lesson of applying and taking it seriously, right? And so, so what are some lessons? Number one, as I just mentioned, many will claim to follow Jesus, but yet they are not doing what he's asked. So Matthew 7, you want to read that for us, Jeff, verses 21 through 23 is another classic example of what Jesus is talking about here. Okay. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And Brian, that, that should be a very sobering passage because in many ways, we have a lot of people today that will acknowledge, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I believe Jesus is, you know, my Savior, my personal Savior. Oh, I, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, my Lord, but they don't act like it. That's right. And I think this was really the number one, if I had to, not that we rank, you know, spiritual problems in the world, but I'd have, if we did, I'd just say this is like number one, especially with false religions, where 
yeah, they may believe in Jesus. They may do almost everything Jesus asks, but there's something they're not doing. Or maybe they've introduced things like musical instruments into worship, whatever it might be. And so much like the person said in verse 21, Lord, Lord, right? You know, haven't we done all these things? Verse 22. Sure, you could do a lot of things in the name of the Lord, but if it's not based on what the Lord wants us to do, then it's not acceptable. And we understand that in our civil society, if a parent asks a child to do something and they go do something else, I think we'd all get that that's not acceptable. You didn't do what I asked you to do. Well, spiritually, it's the same thing. So, you know, Jesus just simply asking, understand my will and do it. Don't introduce or don't leave out anything. And really, if we have that mentality, then then we'll do well. Second lesson is that obedience produces spiritual strength, which allows us to weather the storms of life. So not listening and doing what the Lord teaches is the opposite. It results in weakness and crumbling during adversity. And so I like how Jesus said, here's the truth of the matter. Do what I ask, you're going to be strong spiritually. Don't do what I ask, and not only will I not accept you, but you're going to be very weak, and you're going to suffer consequences. So I like, Jeff, how this is a really fundamental lesson that's pretty powerful. True. Well, and as I tried to allude to, it certainly points to the false doctrine of faith only, or belief only, that, you know, I can, I can maybe confess that, yes, indeed, uh, you know, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior, and I don't have to do anything after that. don't have to. I mean, I can. I probably should, but I don't have to. You know, uh, as we were talking about earlier, once I accept Jesus as my Savior, He has forgiven me of my sins, past, present, and future. So therefore, I don't even necessarily need to repent of sin. It's like, no, not according to, you know, the uh, rhetorical question He asked, as well as, you know, other passages as well that we've examined today. Yeah, that's right. And so many people, unfortunately, will be lost because they think that doing good in the name of the Lord is all that's required, where it has to be good as the Bible defines it. Exactly. So the next question, Jeff, for you comes from John chapter 8 and verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And certainly just the, the verse in isolation or the question in isolation, uh, you know, our listeners might go, ah, I don't remember that. But let me give you the context. Starts back in John chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, basically, it is a case where Jesus is, you know, uh, near Jerusalem. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. The woman in front of Jesus and asked him, verse 4, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that we should, that such person should be stoned, killed, capital punishment. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the middle. 
when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, of course, here's the question, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So a very interesting, fascinating passage. So we got to kind of tease it apart a little bit. Now, first of all, some people might misunderstand it or misinterpret it to teach that Jesus is all loving, God is all loving, they're both all forgiving, that, you know, yeah, we may sin, but it's, it's, it's no big deal, right? Jesus will not condemn us. Uh, Unitarian Universalists, perhaps, uh, you know, may, may have subscribed to that view. But, you know, that is, you know, not the case as we have seen, you know, from other passages and questions we've already asked in today's podcast. So let's let's dig a little bit deeper. What does the Old Testament have to say? Well, first of all, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Okay, so first of all, under the law of Moses, which Jesus lived under, uh, and these scribes and Pharisees, required capital punishment for the act of adultery. Okay. Second nuance, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So, it requires a plurality of witnesses to invoke capital punishment. So, it makes you wonder, in this particular circumstance, as, uh, let's see, it was verse uh, 6. You know, they were testing him, testing Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees were testing him. Hmm, some kind of trap? Hmm, makes you wonder. For example, yes, they caught the woman in the act. As some people point out, okay, fine, where's the man? What happened to him? Hmm, missing. Odd. The other thing, which is a little bit more nuanced, is that at this point in Jewish history, they were under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire, which had taken away from them the right to do capital punishment, which is why the uh, high priest had to turn Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman governor, to crucify him, because the Jews didn't have the right to you know, put religious violators to death. Which makes you wonder if, if the test here is like, okay, Jesus... Yes, the law of Moses condemned that we stone her. We need to stone her. But the Romans have told us we can't stone her. So now what? Should we obey the law of Moses and offend the Romans? Or should we keep peace with the Romans and break the law of Moses? Yeah. So, you know, maybe it was an entrapment kind of question. Jesus very skillfully turns the tables, as, as we read in the passage, and talks about, okay, so if you're without sin, and perhaps more pointedly, without sin in this matter, Okay, fine. You know, you are innocent. Here's the guilty person. Go forth. Execute judgment. And they realize that mm, maybe they did have a part in setting this up. Or it may have been the more global sense of, well, yes, we do. We send different kinds of things and you know, we're not necessarily sinless. So uh, you know, we don't feel comfortable, you know, executing the woman. Either way, basically they all left. So now we're down to no witnesses. Actually, we do have a witness. That would have been Jesus, who, you know, for having deity, you know, witnesses all. And of course, on for one witness, you know, really can't put them to death, you know, based on Old Testament law. 
But notice his mercy. That last verse, Jesus said to her, I, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Which says, hey, I knew you were doing it. I knew you were guilty of sin. Stop it. Don't do it again. Uh, which, again, in this particular case, shows his mercy. So a very interesting passage that sort of takes Old Testament law, Roman law, some degree of mercy, sort of wraps it wraps it all together. It's a very interesting question, Brian. Anything you want to add? Yeah, I agree. And, and to your point, it was very skillful the way that he handled the situation, you know, letting people's own conscience convict them, yes. right, and come to the realization they were all sinners. Exactly. All right, so you get the next one. And again, it's one of those rhetorical ones trying to get us to think from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? There you go, Brian. Yeah, I like this question because to your point, after you hear everything he has to say, you can only come to this conclusion, right? So yeah, the section we're dealing with here is in Matthew 6, like you say, the Sermon on the Mount and verses 25 through 34. So I'll just read here verse 25, he says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So you notice Jesus is sort of peppering him with several questions, right? Rhetorical questions. Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be or shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So the lessons that I think we can glean from really a series of questions that Jesus asked, and certainly the broader lesson he's trying to teach here, and that is to Keep what's most important in life in perspective, and that's seeking first the kingdom of God. It's so easy for us to worry about what we might say are trivial things, and we shouldn't because often these detract us from doing what God wants us to do, which are those good works that Ephesians 2.10 talks about that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So all too often we can get wrapped up and think about it like, what you're going to wear, and what you're going to eat. Where would that rank on the list of important questions in life, right? Well, down the list, wouldn't it? <laughs> but anyhow, so yeah, lesson number one, keep in perspective that seeking first uh, God first is most important. Don't worry about these trivial things. And then I'd say a third lesson here is, you know, trust in the Lord and be confident that he'll provide. You know, Jesus talked about the lilies of the field, God, you know, raid them, better looking, if you will, than Solomon. And then, you know, same with birds. He takes care of the birds. Aren't you more, more valuable than them? So it's understanding that and believing that and trusting that the Lord will provide. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. So when we have faith and trust in the Lord, it can be very powerful. So let's not get wrapped up 
And, you know, like Jesus said, thinking things like food and clothing are much more important than the truth and, and being spiritually pure. Jeff? Well, and, you know, you could easily extend that to anything today that might uh, really preoccupy our concern. I mean, you know, the passage, the context is about worry, about being anxious. You know, that could include economic things like you're referring to here, or the uncertainty of our job, or the fact we've just been laid off, etc. But I suppose you could also extend it to things like the economy in general, or wars abroad, or political controversies, or... Uh, all of the turmoil that's going on with respect to, you know, LGBTQ uh, rights or climate change or asteroid impact or you know, whatever. Just all different kinds of things that people can really get concerned about in many ways have absolutely no influence or control over. When at the same time, from a religious, spiritual perspective, they're sort of like, uh, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. You know, not all that concerned about serving God. Yeah, that's a great point. And you're right, it extends to anything in life. And that's why, as you know, a good companion passage, I love Philippians 4, 6, where it says, be anxious for nothing, right? Don't worry about anything. But what should we do instead? By prayer and supplication, you know, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So no doubt, things happen in life that can legitimately concern us. Like, hey, somebody's attacking our country or whatever. But the truth is, when we have the right perspective, and we see it's about the hereafter, so to speak, right? The spiritual. That can be calming, especially because we have that power of prayer. So, yeah, appreciate that. Point. All right, Jeff. So the next question for you uh, from Jesus comes from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 46, where he asks, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Okay, so again, we need to look at the context back, starting with verse 43 of Matthew 5. In fact, Brian, you want to go ahead and read that? Uh, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Okay, yeah, here it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Yeah, he ends up asking several questions here, doesn't he, Jeff? In this <laughs> well, exactly. And in some ways, throws down a challenge, if you will, for Christians, that can be kind of hard, you know, contextually, you know, how we treat our enemies. And of course, if you kind of look back through the passage, particularly, you know, verse 44, how are we to treat them, our enemies? Love them, bless them, do good to them, pray for them. Oh, that is a hard command, <laughs> just to be you know blunt about it. But this concept of, you know, enemies, treating our enemies, you know, Actually, if you do a little bit of digging, is not just a new, what we might call a New Testament concept. For instance, I found back in Psalms, uh, in the Old Testament, chapter 35, uh, verses 11 through 14, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, 
My clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. So, sympathy for their enemy. Uh, Proverbs chapter 25, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, people who might be somewhat familiar with the Bible will say, wait a minute, isn't that a New Testament thing? Well, actually, yes. In fact, Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22 is quoted in Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Verse 17, beginning. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Skip on down to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And right in the middle of that passage, Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21, he goes back and quotes Proverbs 25. You know, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So indeed, Brian, a very contextually, a very challenging command for us today. Not impossible, admittedly challenging, because typically when people mistreat us, our natural inclination is to lash out right back at them. Right? Give, them what, give them what they gave us. But that's not how uh, Jesus would want us to respond. Yeah, even in our own society, we have statements like, I don't get mad, I get even, you know, those sorts of things. And Well, and even we get to that, even to that point, we get entertained. I mean, think of all the movies and the TV shows that are based on, you know, someone gets mistreated, gets attacked, family members might get abused, uh, they might get fired, uh, family members might even be killed, etc. And the whole rest of the movie is this vengeance, is this revenge thing where this guy is going to go back and he's just going to basically take out all these bad guys. And we root them on. Yeah, vigilante. There you go. You know, vigilante. Uh, etc. Where, as we could have said, you know, Romans chapter 12, Holy Spirit through Paul says, don't do that. But then he rolls on into chapter 13, by talking about the government and their role, you know, as appointed by God, bearing the sword, punishing evildoers, etc. So relying on, you know, the government to, you know, help take care of the evildoers out there and not, you know, you're, you're going to take care of them yourself. Yeah, and if you know, if we're wondering what does it mean to be spiritually mature, one thing I love about a lot of the lessons that Jesus taught is he's telling us this is what it means to be spiritually mature when you can actually love your enemies. Or like in the Sermon on the Mount, where you turn the other cheek, you go the second mile. These are all things that require spiritual maturity. And so I do like that about this one where, like you said, not easy. <laughs> And, uh, you know, something that, that takes a little bit of, uh, once again, maturity to be able to actually do this. All right. looks like you get the last question for today, asked by Jesus. And it's interesting. This question was asked by Jesus after he had died and gone back to heaven. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. And, of course, you'll have to explain who the he and the him are. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Yeah, you know, this is one where Saul himself didn't know who was talking to him, right, when he first heard it. But certainly this is a, a, a part of the scripture that teaches us about the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus, and he was openly persecuting the church, consenting to the death of people like Stephen. Horrible things. You can't imagine doing that against God's people. And so that was verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, and he said, Saul... Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So what was interesting here is the reason why Paul was astonished. I'm sure it was astonishing that somebody was talking to him, right? And a light showed all about him. If you read that section, you'll you'll see. But anyhow, I think the, the main reason also was that Saul was firmly convinced that he was doing the Lord's will by persecuting these people who were claiming to be Christians or, or were Christians in general. Uh, and in fact, we see over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, that Paul mentions this. Paul said, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And so, once again, Saul of Tarsus thought he was doing the right thing. He was not. So what are some lessons? Number one, we need to check to make sure we're in the faith. You know, in Paul's case, he was very well-versed, very educated in the old law, knew it in and out, and wanted to protect that from any attacks. In this case, he felt like the Christians were attacking the old law. He didn't understand. He did it ignorantly. The Lord had mercy. The Lord knew his heart. So check to make sure you're in the faith. In fact, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 9, Paul also says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So thinking he was right. All right, so make sure we're doing what's right according to what the scriptures teach, specifically the law of Christ, the New Testament that we live under today. The second is once we are shown that we are wrong, we need to be willing to change and do the Lord's will. And so Acts chapter 9 says this in verse 20, or, or at least it talks about this concept, and that is when Saul was converted and he understood the truth, it says in verse 20 of Acts 9, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So Jeff, just a wonderful example of somebody who, you know, their sin was brought to their attention. Once they acknowledged that, he was fully willing to repent. He was baptized, and he started doing the Lord's will right away. So a wonderful example for us. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and one of those, oh, I don't know quite how to say it, pivotal moments. Because you know, actually, you know, in, in terms of having a good conscience, as well as being zealous for God, uh, you know, as a zealous Jew, you know, Saul was, you know, had everything going for him. I mean, he was, you know, knowledgeable about the Old Testament, was very passionate about it, uh, was, in fact, you know, even to the point of, you know, when people were blaspheming, you know, saying things wrong against the Old Testament, 
promoting a different messiah, promoting the wrong messiah. You know, he was one of the first ones out there actually doing something about it, all of which was, you know, commendable from that perspective. But yet I think that also points out that, you know, sometimes you can be, you know, very zealous, very passionate, very um, dedicated to something and still be wrong. Yeah, you could be zealously wrong. Well, and it's kind of like we were talking earlier about Matthew 7, right? There's going to be many in the end that say, Lord, Lord, you know, look at all these things we've done. It's like, but you didn't do what I asked, you know? So anyhow. Good point. Uh, good point. So, Brian, that kind of takes us to the uh, the end of today's podcast. Uh, before I give our listeners some references to additional resources on the website, anything you want to uh, add? I'll just say that, you know, Jesus, as we touched on earlier, was a master teacher. And so when he asked questions, obviously it was sometimes to elicit a response that would help him to teach a larger lesson. Uh, but I also think that it can be an example to us that when we attempt to teach others, there's a lot of different methods that we can use. And sometimes that rhetorical question, right, can be effective because that person should reasonably come to a certain conclusion. And so I just like it, Jeff, because it, it's just a, as a sidebar, right, gives us different ways that we can teach others by using some of the same methods that Jesus. True. I appreciate that. And, you know, as well as, you know, kind of a, a small you know, side thought that, you know, we, we should always be wondering, uh, you know, what we do. You know, is it authorized? You know, would Jesus be pleased with it, et cetera? And almost ask, almost like having the voice of Jesus in our head is, wow, are you doing, are you doing the right thing? Are you doing it for the right reason, et cetera? Uh, and be, you know, basically asking ourselves a lot of the questions that, you know, Jesus asked his audience uh, directly and of course through the scriptures are asking us today so as we wrap up yet another podcast uh we'd certainly like to refer our listeners back to our website at biblequestions.org you know we covered a lot of different topics so let me give you sort of a sampling under the topics menu item steps to salvation f for forgiveness g for greed uh, materialism uh, those kinds of things j for judging N for the nature of Jesus, O for obedience, and R for revenge. And as always, we would invite our listeners not only to the website to review the articles, but more importantly to dig into the scriptures uh, that the articles cite and see if indeed the scriptures are teaching what we claim they're teaching. And if you find it to be the truth, apply it to your lives. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, BibleQuestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.